going to come. But when the day comes, we should be doing what we do every day. You know, um, let's just, huh? I'm, I'm going to try it. I don't know that I'm going to use it tonight. But anyway, um, it's really good to see you all. Particularly, I'm so glad. I'm saying this in the depths of my heart. I'm so glad to be in the company of people like you on a night like this. I know there's going to be violence. I know there's going to be destruction. There are awful things going on. I'm glad that we could be together doing what we're doing, and I'm saying that truthfully. So thank you all for being here. Any prayers? Let's let's start. Any prayers tonight? I've got, um, I got an email from... Um, Cheryl, whose husband Paul is has been or underwent triple bypass bypass, so I'm going to include him in our prayers. But any prayers from you guys? I, I know there's a lot in everybody's hearts and minds tonight. Any? If you if you'll keep us in in the prayer loop, we'd, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, you you already are, Lynn. I you've not been here before, but. Um, and I can't remember if what I wrote, you know, I learned that you were coming on. But typically what we do in the class is begin with a prayer, and then we read a lyric, and then whatever major work we're reading, it could be Shakespeare or Dostoevsky or Homer, who, who knows what this insane person who's leading this group is going to do. Generally, I'm, I've been taking everybody historically through our tradition, um, believing that it was really important for all of us to recover a tradition that's lost because um, the loss of it, I think, affects our faith. So the purpose of the class is to find Christ where, to help open our, really, I think, to help open our eyes and our hearts to, um, to see Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. Generally, the lyrics are very small. They're all sure. I'm going to mute you guys if you hold on for a second. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, um, generally the lyrics are short um, they're my way of trying to present an image of Christ to help us see that he could be there in a in a in a wind hover a bird or a four-year-old girl or a spring day it, it you know it doesn't matter I we've been working with a long poem I know it's been a something of a challenge to people as soon as we're done with it, I'm going to go back to some of our very ordinary... I'm going to go back to some of the poems we've already read just to get us back to a, a lyric moment. But right now we've been, we've been dealing with a pretty long poem. I think that's heavy, but I also think it's extraordinary. Um, but anyway, we begin with a prayer and then do a lyric and then we take up our work, whatever it is. The work we've been doing is Boethius's Consolation. And I've been reading through it, and um, I've been struck. I mean, it's been true for me here with Seton and with Francis that um, I stepped back from teaching 10, 12 years ago, whatever it's been, um, to write these books and haven't been teaching except with you guys. And so going back to these works has been a great, great gift to me. I'm, I'm reading Boethius series. Because I find every time I read him, I see more that I didn't see the time before. I mean, the, the works just grow. And I'm aware that we're going to go to the Divine Comedy, and I'm reading Boethius and thinking, holy cow, there is nothing in Boethius 
um, that, that Dante didn't imitate, didn't pick up. The major difference is that Dante fleshed it out with characters, made it more dramatic. Um, but um, the whole Divine Comedy is here. I know that won't make much sense to you now, but when you start the Commedia, it will. You'll, I think you'll just be boggled. I mean, you'll, you'll just be amazed to see that in this little work that Boethius did, there is this rich treasure of philosophic thinking that Dante is going to enlarge on and bring into our world and more directly relate to us in an amazing way, but it's there. So we're reading Boethius, it's a small work, but its implications, um, I, you know, we've been doing this at St. Francis for years now. Um, if we get to Shakespeare or Chaucer, you're, you're not going to read a work after this and not find Boethius everywhere. I'm not, that, I'm not saying that lightly. Um, so anyway, our, um, Lynn, what we do is start with a prayer, read a lyric, and then go to a major work. Um, and right now we're, we're just slowly making our way through um, Boethius. So anyway, welcome. It's good to have you. I, I, hope, I hope you stay with us. Maria or Cece or whatever it is I am to call you. Um, I saw you just came on. I'm glad you're here. Um, glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've got, you know, I'm, I'll tell you in a minute after our prayers, I'm going to do something different tonight. And I think you're the one most responsible. I'm going to put the, if anything, if anything is incoherent in me, I mean, which is sort of, I take general, but if you can't follow me anything tonight, it's because of you. I just want you to know that. Because when we left last week, you had these troubled looks on your face. And I was aware of them. And so tonight, we're going to go back a little bit. Um, so just so you know, if there's any bad things I do tonight, you're, you're at fault. It's your fault. Okay, any prayers? Any you prayers? laugh when you say that. What? You should laugh. <laughs> Suzanne says I should laugh. I'm, I'm hoping you see the humor, that I would never say that to a human being unless I were laughing. God, I try to pick on you guys as much as I can. I think, I hope you all know that by now. Um. I do have a prayer. Um, my sister-in-law's father died from carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, I think on Monday morning. Oh, and yeah. his wife, um, just about died but luckily she her and her daughter because the daughter went to check on them and she got some of the poisoning as well so they were both in the hospital the wife and the daughter but they're both out now but unfortunately her daddy died connie what's his name his name is pepe sorry uh pepe pepe P -E -P -E. uh r-o-q-u-e yeah and the dot and the and the others uh, the, um, Menda is his wife, but Menda, she, she, but Menda, mm -hmm. and then Irma. Irma. Irma's the daughter. Yeah, yeah. But the wife and the, the wife and the daughter are doing great. I spoke to Irma this afternoon, but the daddy unfortunately passed away. So, but I would like because you know, of course, he didn't get any of the last sacraments or anything like that. So, I yeah. would love to lift him up in prayer. God bless. 
Um, Leslie, well, I saw you. Welcome. It's good to see you again. We have a another newcomer, Lynn. So Lynn and I'm hoping that you guys see each other at, at um, St. Louis Seton and, you know, we'll bump in. In fact, I would ask just, you know, if you do see each other, go out of your way to go up and say hello, um, that you've been reading this insane work called The Consolation and, you know, maybe have something to say about it to each other. But if you if you um, see each other in church, go up and, and make the contact physical, you know, get out of this virtual world. I'd start it, Doc. Should be running, is it? Nope. Oh, are you kidding? Nope. It is now. Um, any other prayers? I, I think it's starting. Any other prayers? Deacon Jerry's son, uh, David, uh, went into the hospital. I don't know if anybody else has heard, but uh, he broke his back and had surgery on his back. Um, and then he came out of the hospital and went home, and he got pneumonia. Good. So pray, pray, pray for David. Um, he has uh, special needs also. So yep. But yep. he seems to have a very good attitude about things. So, good. You know, good. very positive. Yeah, yeah. good. But that's all I know. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't heard any more um, from that situation. Yep. Okay, let's, um, Bob, give, can you give me the name of your son again? All right, sorry, Michael, can you give me the name of your son? Oh, uh, his name is Aaron. Aaron. Yes, continual prayers. I didn't want to take up. No, I know, I know that, Mike, I know that, I know that. I just, yes. I, I know that. His situation, is, his situation is ongoing. Yeah, I know, I know that. I just, um. I, sorry, I just want to recall his name. Yes, thank you. Yep, let's um, let's let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, what is there to say that um, God? We gather together in a spirit of humility, or we wouldn't be doing these things. We're here. It is a dark night for our country. Um, Thank you, Lord, um, that um, we've been given the gift of being born in this country. It's, it's a rare honor for us to be able to live in a country in which we can participate in the selection of our leaders. A lot, that doesn't happen in a lot of countries, and I know we can get disillusioned and caught up in politics. And um, There's a real difference between both parties that are you know, that are at stake tonight. Real issues that are, um, that go to our faith. Um, there's a lot of us, I'm included, that feel that we have lost our way. I, I particularly feel like um, there's a closeness between us and the Israelites when they lost their way and and the answer was captivity and punishment, exile. Um, we don't know what's in store for us. Um, if there are hard times ahead, help us to see it as a time of purification. We're only here because we partly let these things happen. We're involved in them. 
watch over our country this night, please. Lots of people will die. Um, property will be destroyed. Um, I asked this prayer earlier. Let our whole angelic order, let all the angels be busy tonight, watching where they can. Lots of people will die. Um, keep the deaths down, please. Um, let the outcome be according to your will. Um, whatever our feelings are, we um, lots of us have deep convictions about what's at issue here. Um, help us all to remember that um, you don't let things happen unless there's some good to be brought out of us. So whatever we do, help us to give our wills. Watch over this night. Help us all to have quieter hearts. Um, I ask for special prayers for Aaron. Be with that young man. Um, help him in his struggles. I, um, I ask more particularly for Michael. Um, I think it's in some ways harder for parents to endure the struggles of their kids. Um, I, Suzanne and I know that, and I think most of us do. Um, be with Paul. He's had triple bypass. Help him in his recovery and help Cheryl be at peace with what's going on. Um, um, <laughs> what to say about Connie? God, she watches over everybody. Um, be with Peppy and um, sorry, Connie, I'm really sorry. The, the wife's name is Minda. Menda and the daughter? Irma. Irma. Be with Pepe. Um, he's the man who died, yes? yes. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound good. It's, uh, it's an age of disbelief. Um, I, I think buried underneath our country is this great spiritual despair. Help us, here in this small group, lift it. Help us not to give in to that despair. Despair means not having hope. Strengthen every one of us in our hope that whatever we do, we carry you, um, particularly when it involves a cross. It's always there. Receive Pepe. Um, if there's a purgatory that he enters, um, let our prayers speed him. Wash away his sins. Let him know the joy that he wanted to know here. The, the world offers glimpses of it. Um, we won't see it full, not here. That's our promise. That's our hope. Wash away his sins. Um, receive him. Um, let, let him make his approach to you in your kingdom. And more importantly, at least now, for us here, be with his wife and um, their daughter, let them find a comfort in this. Um, as for all of us, whatever dark things happen, let them be occasions for strengthening in us in our faith. That's our faith. No matter what goes on, our God, what, what was impossible, but God went to a cross. No matter what happens with us here, help us never to forget that. However dark they get, um, you've given us away. Um, always to be hopeful when we have no reason for hoping. Help us to keep our strength, our faith, when we have no reason for holding our faith. That's what those gifts are. They're supernatural. So strengthen all of us in those virtues. Um, I'm sorry, David. Who? I'm sorry, 
um, who had, is that Leslie, was that, yeah, say it again, I'm sorry, David was, um, help me. Deacon Jerry's son. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leslie, your 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 audio's off. What was the problem with the son? What happened with? Him? I'm sorry. Uh, Jerry's oh, he broke his back. He broke his back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Be with David. God, sounds like he has a good spirit. Strengthen that. Let let that young man <coughs> find a glory in struggling against this stuff. Some some people have more of it than others. Strengthen it in him. Help him in his recovery. Um, so on this night of trial, help us all to have quieter hearts, be with um, Melody and her husband, um, continue to help him in his efforts to find a job, <laughs> to be the Odysseus that Melody sees him as being. And if that's so, that means big. she can talk about this romantically in terms of literature all she wants. It means... Penelope's got a trial of years and years and years, so help, help her to be steady. Whatever we do, help us to keep a sense of humor, a gladness, trusting. There's always some great glory behind these. Help us never to forget them. Um, I want to offer this special expression of gratitude to this group that they are holding with us as they are. We offer these prayers... In your name, Christ our Lord, amen. You are, you are an amazing group. Why you're here, I don't know. Okay, we've got, um, let's finish the um, Vespers and, um, and continue moving through the Horae. Um, Lynn, you would know, we've been working through um, W.H. Auden's poem, Ore Canonica. It's a much longer poem than we... There's only two long poets, or two long poems that we will deal with in our work together if we stay together long enough. One of them is this one by Auden. The other one is The Four Quartets by Eliot. I happen to believe The Four Quartets um, is the greatest work of poetry in the 20th century. It's pretty tough. Um... And I, and I hope we will be, get to it together. But meanwhile, we're doing this. The Hore Canonicae, it's called Hore, the title is Hore Canonicae, Emolatus Dicerit. Um, the canonical hours Christ um, immolated. Victorious. victorious. That in his crucifixion, he was victorious. So the poem is structured around the canonical hours. It's the prayers that the monastic orders prayed through the day. We've gone through them. I don't want to do it all again. But let me briefly just take everybody through it as quickly as I can to get to the end. Um, remember, it began in prime, first hour of the day. It's a dawn. It's sunrise. We will discover in the course of the poem that this is Good Friday. The, the poem, to me, is one of the most biting pieces of irony that I've ever experienced in my life. And, and I'm not young, so I'm not saying that lightly. To me, the whole meaning of the poem is irony. There, there's nothing that goes on in the world that isn't ironic. It begins with the uh, um, speaker of the poem awakening and putting away the whole underworld of dreams 
what he calls on the first page um, the nocturnal rummage of its rebellious, fraud, ill-favored, ill-natured, and second-rate, disenfranchised, widowed, orphaned by a historical mistake, that is, we crucified our God. We won't know that until shortly. But, but anyway, it's left that world of the underworld dreams, the unconscious, and the person enters consciousness. He's come out of sleep. And when he does that, it's as if he's passing from an Edenic innocence, the innocence of Adam before the fall, into the fall. So he says at the bottom of page one, I am here not alone but with the world and rejoice unvexed for the will has still to claim this adjacent arm as my own. That is the conscious because we have free will and we can move our arms. You know, we can, we can kill somebody. But the action's ours. He's awakening into an action of the will. The memory to name me to resume its routine of praise and blame and smiling to me is this instant while still the day is intact and I, the Adam, sinless in our beginning, Adam still previous to any act. So it's like a pre-lapsarian, it's a pre-fallen moment, but once he acts, he will enter into the fall. It's the condition all of us live in. I draw breath. This is, of course, to wish no matter what, to be wise, to be different. All the things we care in your life. I want to have a, a good day. I want to be smart. I want to show how good I am, how bright I am. The first stanza, the first section ends, the prime ends, and my name stands for my historical share of care for a lying, self-made city afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. One of the great things that we've had with us since the beginning is the city. It's man's attempt to live without God. It's one of the ironies that we'll be biting through this whole poem. The city. It's, it defines our lives. It, it's as if it, nothing makes sense without the city because it's only in doing the city that we take on an identity of people who want to create this world in our own. But that, that phrase um, stands for my historical share of care for a lying self-made city, afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. In the terse, he goes to name a set of um, citizens, um, people who are identified by their task. The hangman, the judge, and the poet all go on to do what they do. At the bottom of page two, we are left each to his secret cult. Now each of us prays to an image of his image of himself. Let me get through this coming day without a dressing down from a superior, being worsted in a repartee. You know, let anything happen, but let me get through this day as if it were just an ordinary day. It ends, the terse ends. Um, sorry, the terse ends. For once there will be no squabbling, not so. We enter to the day, we'd like to enter to the day so that we, I mean, you hear this every day when we meet each other, have a good day, have a good day, have a good day, you know, it's what we wish. Um, it, it, it's a, I think it's well-intentioned, but think about it, it only comes because we know the, the days might not go well. So he says, for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Thonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. 
We set out as if hoping by the end of the day we will have had a good day. So everybody approaches their life with this expectation, let me just get through the day and let it be a good day. <coughs> Except this is Good Friday. And everybody's going around as if it doesn't matter. In the sext, we've given, um, Hodden describes these three groups of people, those people who are given to a vocation, they know exactly what they're doing on page three. They wear the same rapt expression for getting themselves in a function. That is, they do what they do so well. Let it be a lawyer, let it be a, doc um, a doctor, let it be a mother raising her kids. It doesn't matter. They are trying to do the best they can to bring something good uh, out of what they're doing. So they're very focused on what they're doing. That's the first group. The second group are those people with authority, whose authority makes it possible for them to get things done on page four. You need not hear what orders he's given to know if somebody has authority. You will hear it in his voice. When a mother says to a kid, knock it off, go to time out, <laughs> you know she means it. Um, so without this authority, things wouldn't get done. In the third group on page five, anywhere you like, somewhere on broad-chested life-giving earth, anywhere between her thirstlands and undrinkable ocean, the crowd stands perfectly still its eyes and its mouth, expressionless, perfectly blank. You know, the crowd goes on doing what the crowd does, a little bit blind. But then there are those telling words on page six. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Even if they don't know it, they've already given themselves to what's there. It's as if mindlessly that's what we do. Few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly, but the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are brothers. Outside of the crowd, there's something wrong with us. All of us have to go there and it's by virtue of doing that that we can save one another brothers. So he presents it as if it's a good thing, but we know still there's something wrong. This is what everybody does. Um, when have they ever ignored their queens, the things that they worship, for one second stopped work on their provincial cities? When have any of us stopped the work that they do, the work that we do to bring these cities into existence? I hope I've underscored that enough, that all of us have this common task. After, for, you know, Leslie and Lynn, I'm thinking mostly of you, but... At the beginning, when we started this, I, the city was one of the most important paradigms of our work. And I, I reminded everybody that the city comes into existence in our separation from God. Cain kills Abel, he's exiled. Um, Cain's son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So the first city comes into existence when we try to be self-sufficient, to live as if we don't need God. So the city is this, God has, he said, don't touch Cain. You know, he sent him in, he put a mark, he said, do not, Cain murdered. God didn't damn him, he didn't, he just sent him out. Um, and Enoch, his son, made the city. So the city comes into existence in our effort to live without God. So in the city we see everything that's extraordinary about man, that we can, you know, the twin towers, airplanes in the sky, whatever, medicine, we can do all these extraordinary things. And still, there's something wrong. 
because we're trying to live self-sufficiently as if we don't need God. So the the um, the sext ends on page six when he says, "When have they ever ignored their queens for one second? Stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying." Now, from the opening um, section, we've been aware that there will be this. Um, scapegoat, the judge, the hangman, the poet, everybody will do what they're doing, um, but all of their efforts are defined in terms of this scapegoat. Whatever we do as a people trying to create these cities rests on our scapegoating. That all of us have the scapegoating mechanisms, we scapegoat somebody else, we put a blame on somebody else in order to do what we do. So every section ends with this haunting sense that this work goes on, but there's a death. So the scapegoat has been implied in everything we do. To worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying. We don't know what this dying means, but it gets clear and clear. In knowns, this is the center of the poem. It's three o'clock, so if you go through the canonical hours, this is the time when Christ was crucified. So in the morning, there are the trials when he's brought before Pilate, you know, and Herod, and everything goes on there. But in the knowns, um, mid-afternoon, this is the time when the scapegoat, when the God was crucified so that people could go on with their lives. So the knowns begins, what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits and shaman and sibyl gibbering in their trances. That is, the one thing not possible in the world that a God who's immortal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent, I hope everybody's hearing that, because it's absolutely the center of our faith. It's one of the great mysteries of our faith. How can a God who's omnipotent, omniscient, die? Um, but that's what Christ came to do, because only a God who took human form could answer our sins against God. So the thing that's impossible happens. What we knew, what we know to be not possible, that we've heard hints of it, happens. Um, we are surprised, this is page seven at the top, we are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It is barely three mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright, too still, to ever the dead remains to nothing what shall we do till nightfall it's still what we do as if nothing happened we have to find some way to preoccupy ourselves until bedtime when we go to sleep i hope everybody's hearing the ironies i mean I, the ironies are so razor sharp you know it, what the beauty he doesn't he doesn't describe the crucifixion he doesn't go in he does nothing all he keeps doing is describing what people go do ordinarily every minute of their days and all the time we're made aware there's this other thing going on and we pretend like it's not happened. Is that clear? I hope that's clear because the ironies to me are, I, I've never read a poem whose ironies are greater. So it's done. Yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry. People go about their work. 
Still on page 7, the wind has dropped and we've lost our public. The faceless many, they go about their jobs. None of them can remember why he shouted or what about so loudly in the sunshine this morning. As if challenged, if somebody were asked, he'd reply, it was a monster with a red eye. A crowd that saw him die, not I. I've said this before. Imagine the people around Jerusalem watching this guy die. It's just another man. It wasn't some great god on a cross. It was a human being. Who could care? It's another criminal. Some Jew, some Roman. You know, I mean, imagine all the people around thinking, one more crucifixion. People go on with their lives. The Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the yellow dam turn their kind faces from us, and our projects under construction look only in one direction. So the Madonnas have their face somewhere. I mean, it's just, to me, it's an extraordinary moment because there's a kindness in that, the woodpecker, the fig tree, the yellow dam. They turn their kind faces from us. Mary's Christ's mother. She just lost her son. She just watched her son crucified. She loved the son. He didn't do anything wrong. She loved him. She raised him. He was in the middle of turmoil. She was at the cross. She doesn't rage. You know, she doesn't want vengeance. Um, she turns her kind face. Everybody goes back to work. Imagine how many women could do that. And I'm going to say, imagine how many women have been called to do that, you know, as mothers. So it's a, it's the center of the poem. It's all presented as if nothing's happened, but the ironies are so deep. This On page 8, this muttered flesh, our victim explains too nakedly, too well, the spell of the asparagus garden. No. Aim, so, women go back to gardening. Men go back to their jobs. They go back as if nothing's happening. Um, and that brings us um, to the Vespers. So, the act is completed. The scapegoat has reached his end. This figure, the center of a city, um, Auden, Auden keeps hinting at it. We don't get a lot to do about it. What Auden keeps doing is the city, so we're left with this sense of razor-sharp ironies. People go about their work. It's Good Friday. It's as if nothing's happened, and yet what's happened defines the world. So we come to Vesters. It's 6 p.m. It's evening time, and you remember he begins Vespers with a description of the hill in terms of Adam and Eve, Adam's grave, so that we're reminded the fall's always with us in the city. No matter what we do in the city, it's falling. And then he describes this strange moment when two figures encounter each other. They're anti-types. The bottom, page 9. For sun and moon supply their conforming mask, but this hour of civil twilight, all must wear their own faces. We have to become who we are or wear a mask. And it's now that our two paths cross, both simultaneously recognize his anti-type, that I'm an Arcadian, that he's a utopian. I'm not going to go through all of this, um, but you remember he, he keeps saying um, on page 10, in my Eden, our only source of political news is gossip in his Jerusalem. 
what he's doing basically is showing the two poles of our existence. Here's the, here's the whole meaning of Vespers. After the act, after the crucifixion takes place, what happens is set in concrete. It's happened. God has come. People can pretend. They can ignore it. They can repudiate. They can die. They can do whatever they want, but God's come. Either they will see that a historical action um, was furthered by what he did, meant to help people return to God, or they'll refuse. But it's there. So what it's created are is this tension between two antitypes. Somebody who identifies himself with Eden and somebody who identifies himself with the New Jerusalem. And that's crucial, absolutely crucial. Carl Jung, the great psychologist, talked about a create or a collective unconscious, that all people have this collective unconscious that's in us. Um, Auden's only making that more specific. He's saying, and lots of great poets have said something similar. Musilov, the the Nobel Prize winner, said, all poetry has its roots in the New Jerusalem. All of the pain of not getting it, the struggling for getting there, it defines our very existence. Auden is saying that in every single human being, there is this tension, these two poles. They define us. One of them is Eden. We look back to a perfection we once enjoyed. We long for it. We want it. At the same time, we've lost it, and we long for the New Jerusalem. We aspire to be re- returned to God, to be with Him in His kingdom. But the two stand in polar opposites because the Edenic guy acts as if he's got it now. So, and the and the Utopian guy is aware that we don't. So he's aspiring for what's yet to be. And it's not the gospel. So the two stand in conflict, in contrast. I'll come to it in a minute, reminding each other that something's wrong, okay? Another way of looking at this is haves and have not. Those who feel like they're there and they've made it, they've got their wealth, their home in suburbia, all's nice, everything's comfortable. They've recovered Eden. The guys in the cities tearing it apart, committing violence, saying, no, there's an injustice here we want. Those are the two poles that define our existence. They're in everybody, and the tension between them defines us, okay? So he will say on page 10, um, at the top, he notes with contempt my Aquarian belly. He's a little bit overweight. I note with alarm his scorpion mouth. He would like to see me clean routine latrines. That is, he doesn't want to see him comfortable because he knows there's something false about this Edenic world. I would like to see him removed to some other planet. Neither speaks. What experience could we possibly share? Some people have it, some people don't. He goes down that long list. I love it. I, I, if you've not read it in a while, read it again. I, I just think it's extraordinary. You can see then why between my Eden and his new Jerusalem, no treaty is negotiable. In my Eden, a person who dislikes Bellini, it's a fancy drink, has the good manners not to get born. That is, he belongs to the upper class. He thinks he's above it. Everything He's got it. He knows it. He's enjoying his good drinks um, and looks down at anybody who doesn't. In my Eden, let's see, um, in his New Jerusalem, a person who dislikes work will be very sorry he was born. In my Eden, we have a few beam engines. He goes on. 
Um, one reason for his contempt is that I have only to close my eyes, cross the iron footbridge to the towpath, <coughs> take the barge through the short back tunnel, and there I stand in Eden again. He's back in his comfortable home. Um, welcome back to the um, crumb horns, drop in sore tombs of jolly miners and a Bob Major from the cathedral of St. So that is, those are those ringing bells and all these musical instruments that are so beautiful to hear as a part of a formal ceremony. One reason for my alarm is that when he closes his eyes, he arrives not in Jerusalem, but at some August day of outrage when Helican caverts cavort through ruined drawing rooms and fishwives, these foul-mouthed women intervene in chambers. They go into these, you know, um, town hall meetings. Some autumn night of deletions or nuyades. Nuyades are those actions during the terror in the French Revolution when people drowned other people. You know, that they either beheaded them or drowned them to kill them. Um, or some autumn night of deletions, getting rid of people. And notice the nice language. Not killing deletions. They cover it up. Some autumn night of deletions and yachties when the un unrepentant thieves, including me, are sequestered and those he hates shall hate themselves instead. So the past, that is, they'll take action that will make them people regret that they're even alive. Now here's where the crisis comes. So with a passing glance, we take each other's posture. Already our steps recede, heading incorrigible each towards his kind of meal and evening. Was it, as it must look to any god of crossroads, simply a fortuitous intersection of life paths, loyal to different fibs, or also a rendezvous between accomplices who, in spite of themselves, cannot resist meeting to remind the other, do both at bottom desire truth, of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim, this scapegoat that everybody wants to forget in the way they carry on their lives. But for him, I could forget the blood, but for me, he could forget the innocence, on whose immolation, call him Abel, Remus, whom you will. Oops, sorry, God. Sorry. I don't even know what I did, God. Um, sorry. Um, but for me, he could forget the innocence on whose, on whose immolation, call him Abel. Remember, Abel's from the Bible. Remus, a Roman, I think it was a founder, one of the, whom you will, it is one sin offering, Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of democracy are all alike founded. Every political institution raises itself on this scapegoat. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent, no secular wall will safely stand. We cannot raise our city except at the cost of a scapegoat. Now, I only have one question, and I want to um, just ask it and then finish our work on this section. We'll, we'll do the Compline next year. I mean, sorry, next week. 
when Auden says that they, these two anti-types meet, you know, that they represent these two poles, one Edenic, one Utopian, um, he says, um, when they meet, they're loyal to different fibs. What is it? They cannot resist meeting to remind the other of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim. But for him I could not forget the blood, but for me he could not forget the innocence. You know, it's about this immolation, this sacrifice. Um, what does that say about each of the men? Why does the Indian guy say it's only when he meets this other guy, if it, it, but for him, he would forget the blood. And the other guy, the, the New Jerusalem guy, could go on fine until he meets the other guy, and when he meets him, he, he's faced to look at the innocence that he would like to forget. So what, is, what does that tell us about each of those two men as, as anti-type? Is that clear? For, but for him, I forget, I forget the blood. What does that say about him? That this guy reminds him of the blood. But for me, he could forget the innocence. What does it say about the Jerusalem guy? That for the Edenic guy, he could forget the innocence. What does that tell us about those two types? I just want to be clear in that um, before we leave this section, because I think it's crucial for the whole thing. Is it because the... It, it's naturally easier for us to see fault in someone who is uh, different, who di has different ideals than we do ourselves. So uh, we see sin in other people. You know, the 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 uh, the, the the speck in someone's eye, and, and ignore the log in our own eye. Mike, I think that's true, but but it specifies a difference. You know, for the one, he could go on. Um, Without the other guy, he could easily forget the blood. He would overlook it. And for the other, um, he could go on and be happy, except it's, it's the presence of the other guy that um, makes it impossible for him to forget the innocent. So each type is specified. A stance is specified for each one of them. And I just want to get clear on that um, because I think what you're saying is true, but I, I, I want to be clear on what the difference is but sorry is between them because it's I think it's important for understanding remember the one one way of putting the vespers in the knowns the sacrifice has taken place right it's happened it's over everybody goes on about their work vespers comes in its evening and what's really clear is that one of the effects of the crucifixion is this tension that what we live with after the crucifixion is a tension between these two poles. All of us carry them. We long for Eden. We want peace. We want innocence. We want everything to be comfortable. That's what we long for, to recover that Edenic world. At the same time, we're not satisfied. We're unhappy that things are not the way we want. All of us know these things. We want more. So we long for the New Jerusalem. So what Auden is doing is defining the only two possibilities that we're left with after the fall. And what he's saying is there, there's conflict, this tension. So the, the topic of the Vespers is this tension between these two poles. 
I just want to be sure we're all clear on what those are before we get to the Compline. You know, what's what's the effect of this this scapegoat that we build our cities on and, and you know want to pretend we can go on? Who are these two types? What are they? Can we identify well, to, them more clearly? To me, the Akkadian, the the one who dreams of Eden, who wants to visualize life as Eden. Everything is perfect because he's looking at it through those rose-colored glasses, except that he sees the blood. And the blood messes up this vision of his perfect world. Whereas the New Jerusalem guy, he wants to see, he sees the pain. You know, he sees the work and he sees it's not all rosy. But he can't get over the fact that the scapegoat was innocent. I mean, the scapegoat did not deserve to suffer the way that he suffered. So um, both of their visions of the future, both of their visions of the world have been ruined because of the blood and uh, because New Jerusalem can't get over the fact that this guy didn't deserve it, but it, it still happened to him. Yeah, I, I think yes to that, but there's a, I need to, I think I need to correct something here, but anybody else? Um, this is sort of amazing to me what Auden's doing. Anybody, any other thoughts before? You know, there's that wonderful line where, on page 10, to go back where the speaker keeps making these comparisons in Eden. In my Eden, our only source of political is gossip. What's there to talk about? He's already settled. He's got everything he wants in his New Jerusalem. Wait, in a, um, there will be a special daily, special daily and simplified spelling for nonverbal types. That is, they'll they'll do everything they can to make it possible for everybody to come with them. It, it's really like what goes on in the spool. But it just to me, it stuns me because it so fully captures the extremes of politically the, correct. What's going on politically in our world? Not just polit the whole political spectrum can be defined in those terms. But then he goes on, in, in my Eden, each observes his comp compulsive rituals and superstitious taboos, but we have no morals. Why? Because they're settled. They don't need anything. They've got everything they want. In his New Jerusalem, the temples will be empty, but all will practice the rational virtues, because it's always yet to be. The temples are empty because they're striving to get to it. The secret thing, this line, um, cannot resist meaning to remind the other of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim. But for him, I forget the blood. That is because he's got everything he wants. The other guy is still striving because he knows there's something more. The other guy looks at the Eden guy and he dislikes his dishonesty. He thinks he's innocent. I don't think it's just about the innocence of Christ. It's that the, the, the identity guy thinks he's innocent when he's not. Both of them are partially false. They're both living false selves. What they're both missing is this scapegoat. That there was this God that came into the world who did not live just for political ends to create the city. He called everybody to salvation after. It's why the Jews turned away from Christ. 
So what you've got is both of them, each of them reminding the other of what he lacks, of what they're, they can't see about themselves. When the Edenic guy looks at the Jerusalem guy, he's reminded of the blood. There's going to be violence, there's something more to do. When the Jerusalem guy looks at the innocent guy, he sees a lie. He pretends like he's innocent, but he's not. There is no Eden. Both of them are trying to live in a world that partially denies this complete self-sacrifice that God made, this impossible thing. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent, no secular wall will safely stand. So, um, at, you know, at the end of Vestures, at the end of the evening, Auden is making us aware that one of the consequences of the, of the, of the scapegoat, remember, every, every section has been about a scapegoat. We create victims for ourselves so that we can go on with our lives. The cost of our success, whether it's Edenic or Utopian, is this scapegoat. There is this scapegoating mechanism to everything we do. We either go with Christ and give up the world, or we build our cities like this. Um, what he called, remember at the beginning, afraid of our living task that, um, for a lying, self-made city. Afraid of our living task. <laughs> the irony is here. Afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. So here at nighttime, we're left with the tension that all of us have inherited from Christ. It's our struggle. So I think that's clear. I mean, at least as much clarity that I can bring. Any, any comments or thoughts about Vespers or... It's a pretty heavy poem. Pretty heavy poem. I'd, I'd never, I'd ever, it's really interesting to me. I read these sometimes and think I understand them, and then I talk about with them a class, and then I realize I don't begin to understand them until I talk with them, you know, about it with you guys, and then they blow me away. It's a beautiful poem. Anyway, any comments or thoughts or. The irony of the poem, it to, to me, the mean, this is strange. I don't think I've ever said this about any other poem in my life. The meaning of the poem is irony. There's nothing going on in our life, nothing that isn't ironic. If you look at the battles in the political spectrum right now, I mean, I, I haven't gone on public on where I, I think you probably know where I stand on the issues, but um, when I look at the divisions between right and left today, it's just, it's hard for me to look at them without seeing them in terms of exactly what, or close to what, close to what Auden's describing. Any response, I'd love to hear any response, what is this poem beginning to mean? I mean, we still have, we still have two sections to go, but anybody want to make a comment on what this poem has been meaning to you guys? That, that we, we, we spent more on this poem than we've ever spent on a lyric together, so I, I know it's been asking a lot of you guys, but any thoughts on, any responses to what it's, what it says to you, what it, what it means to you, or before we stop for the night? I, I find that often when somebody bugs me, it's about something that's <laughs> my flaw as well. So yeah. I see that. Yep. In <laughs> yep, 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 yep.
Bless your soul, Leslie. Bless your soul. Bless your soul. <laughs> Whatever burden that means for you, because I, I, you, you know, you can't have that kind of experience without carrying a burden when you do it. God, what an extraordinary thing Christ did. What an extraordinary mystery he left us with. Connie, any thoughts on this? No, none that comes to mind. Lynn, you're a newcomer. I mean, I, I know this putting you on the spot because... You've got no background and nothing leading up to it, but any what's I mean here here you've had this mountain dumped on your head. Um, you have any response to this? It's got to be a lot, I'm sure. What? Can you put your audio on? I'm, I'm I, don't I don't know what I'm doing yet. So yeah. No comments yet. <laughs> well, just to put you at home, I don't think the rest of us know either. So don't don't feel strange there. We're all. I think we're all in the same boat in that way. We're all. I think I flunked literature when I was in college, so I got a long ways to go. <laughs> <laughs> so did your professor. Yeah, just I don't I don't know if every I mean I don't know if everybody I don't know who I've told this to. I think I told it to the class. Just so you know, Lynn, when I grew up, reading was not a part of my life at all. Writing. When I married Suzanne, um, she could write and read, and I laughed at her one day when she came up with a book and said, "What does this mean?" Because I thought, I mean, I. Anyway, um, I didn't grow up with reading or writing, I, and in high school I played basketball. I got good grades, but I did nothing. What got me through my childhood was sports. I'm not kidding about it. I think basketball saved me. When I went to college, I was a pre-med major, mostly be because of my mom's urging. I mean, she couldn't have missed more. You know, I was taking zoology and chemistry and things I did not love at all. I flunked. I flunked bonehead English twice. And I flunked out of college. So my first year of college as a freshman, fall year, fall semester, I flunked bonehead English. Twice. And then the next semester in the spring, you know, whatever courses I took, I had to take, I'm sure I got D's and F's in my first semester, but I was still there. I'm sure I got D's and F's again. And I flunked bonehead English again. Bonehead English. So I flunked bonehead English twice. And, you know, I, I couldn't, I mean, I, I was dismissed. I'd flunked. And I was on my own. I'd left home when I was starting on college, so I was on my own trying to put myself through school and working a job and went back to JC and was taking classes and I took a course. I was a major in psychology. That was foolish for me, but I took a course in literature and it just blew me away. So that wasn't until I was, you know, a couple of years away from high school and and trying to go back, recover, go back to JC and fell in love with literature and ended up teaching it. Um, and, and you know the sad outcome of that because I've been inflicting myself on you guys for... <laughs> um, so don't feel, don't feel out of place, Lynn. I, I, I have such a... I, I don't want to get going in I have such a strong feeling about the importance of failing you know, our culture doesn't want to let anybody fail, and I just think that's a huge mistake. A huge mistake. If if we don't learn to fail, I, I just think if we don't learn to fail, we don't know how to recover, you know, if we're always protected from it. So I have a large heart in my, I have large parts in my heart for 
failures and you know picking up and recovering and so anyway heavy poem heavy poem um next week we'll do compline and and then we'll finish it and then we'll get back to small lyrics i promise you when we get back i'm gonna do hopkins i'm already decided i'm gonna do hopkins the wind of her i'm gonna do uh schnackenberg's um supernatural love we've already done them but i want to get to a um, small poem where we can just have a small poem and breathe <laughs> this, this is pretty tough okay um let's let's any any other comments on the um the, the hore Auden's poem before we start um okay let's i'm gonna do something tonight that's i'm gonna I'm going to make a point of stopping early, just to let you guys know. It's where my mind and heart are. I'd, um, part of me does not want to avoid the elections. I know everybody's carrying heavy weights. Um, 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 I'm going to turn the TV on at 11 o'clock for five minutes, and then I'm turning it off. I'm not going to go nuts with this stuff. But I know it's a heavy. I know it's a heavy moment. What I'd like to do tonight is something a little bit different. What I'd like to do is pick up where we left off in three and briefly recover four in light of five. I know that may not make sense right now, but I hope I can make sense of it in a minute. Because I believe what's going on in four is so, in one sense, obvious, and in another sense, not obvious at all. And I don't I don't want to take anything for granted because I think the arguments that Lady Philosophy is making to Boethius are so important because they go to heaven and hell. They go to this question of justice and mercy. They're going to be central to Dante's Divine Comedy. I mean, we're going to go there in a couple of weeks. Everything that Boethius does gives Dante the framework for the Divine Comedy. So I want to make sure we ourselves can make these arguments before we go on. I don't want to pass over. I don't want to push. I don't want to hold us to a schedule. I want to make sure everybody genuinely understands what's being said because it's crucial for what happens in Book 5 and for what we're going to meet in the Divine Comedy. It goes to the heart of the difference between heaven and hell. So it's at the center of our faith. So I don't, I'm not going to press. We're going to go back a little bit tonight. I'm going to pick up some of the things we did. And I want to try to go over them a little bit more slowly. And make sure that we're all together. I, I may be underestimating you guys. And I'm, pardon me if I am. I, I just think that what's going on here is so important. I don't I don't want to rush over it. I want to make sure we're we've all got it, okay? So let me go back to three and make a connection to five briefly, okay? You know that the the Boe the consolation begins with Boethius feeling sorry for himself because he's been treated unjustly. He's been accused of a crime he hasn't committed and he's gonna be killed. He's gonna be executed as a matter of justice as a matter of justice. So immediately at the beginning of the book, we're aware that the world does things in the name of justice when in fact what it does is not just. So Beethus is whining, he's crying, he said, I don't deserve this. <laughs> 
and Lady Philosophy, and I want to come back to this in a moment, the timing, the fact that she comes at this moment, that wisdom comes to this guy right before he's going to be killed. Just hold on to that notion of the time. Is that chance? Is that an accident? Because we're going to talk about accidents and chance in a minute. She comes to him at that moment when he's in despair and says, knock it off, stop whining. The problem is you, not the world, you've lost your way. You've forgotten yourself. And so the theme of anamnesis, forgetting, is introduced at the beginning. She says, the problem isn't that people are treating you unjustly, because that's what the world does. The problem is you, you have forgotten yourself. It's a little bit like what Leslie said a minute ago, if I can take advantage of you, Leslie, for a second, when she said she'd like to crown somebody, and then she knows in an instant that there may be something wrong in the way she's responding. I think most of us know that. She say, knock it off. The problem was you. And her first response is to say, the problem is you've been reading too much literature, too much poetry, your emotions are too much involved. Um, get rid of those sluts <laughs> and recall your beginnings and ends. So her first thought is get rid of literature and get back to philosophy. Now, I'm going to, so I, you know how much I enjoy the irony of that, but just on, a, on a, another note here. Remember this, because right now we're getting a piece of philosophy. As soon as we finish Dante, or I mean, Boethus, we're going to do Dante, and Dante is going to give us a piece of literature. But there's no way he could have done that literature without Boethus and St. Thomas. Anyway, she, so she says, the problem with you is you've lost your way, and, she's, and then she begins to her cure, which she offers as medicine, and says, I've got to treat you carefully because we've got to take this slow and as I go along I will increase my medicine and things will get harder and tougher for you but right now we've got to go back to beginnings. What are your beginnings? And So she starts at the beginning and says, all men desire happiness. The reason you're miserable is because you long for happiness but it's not here. Yeah, I, I hope that, I mean that's sort of self-evident and we can look past it. He, he's miserable and feeling sorry for himself because he's not happy. That he believes he deserves happiness. And she's straightening out and said, yeah, all men do deserve happiness, but let's get straight on what it is. So what she does is take on all those things that most men see as um, the things that will make them happy. Right? And we name them. Pleasure, nobility, honor, wealth, Power, right? She went through every one of those. Is there? I hope. And please stop me if, because it's so important to me that we get clear on what's going now, so that when we take the next step, we're fully there. She says the problem is you're in, you want happiness, but you're miserable because you don't have those things. The problem, and she says she's scolding him. She's upset with him. She says you know this stuff because you grew up loving me. You grew up loving me. You gave your life to philosophy. In fact, one of the reasons people have condemned you is because you're virtuous. Because he's a reminder of everything they're not. It's exactly what Socrates said. It's exactly what Christ said. What Thomas More. What every saint. Every saint is, is a <coughs> scold to the world because he or she reminds the world of something they're not doing right. So she said, the problem's you. 
And what she does then is take up each one of those things, power, fame, wealth, pleasure, and she shows that every one of them cannot be um, the source of happiness. Why? Before we go on, just I just want to be clear. Why does she say that? This is just a quick summary, you guys, of what we're doing, but I think it's important before we go on. What's wrong with those things? Because we know that those are the things that most of us strive for, for our lives. Take all of them. Pleasure, wealth, power, fame, nobility. Tina, go ahead. Tina, I, I can't hear you, or we can't, I don't hear you. Is your audio on? I just turned it on. There it um, is, yeah. They could be lost or taken away. Yeah. All those things. Yeah. Is everybody okay? We can't rest our happiness in any one of those because not any one of them is self-sufficient in itself. It's ephemeral. It won't last. Even if we have power, somebody can take it away. If we gain power, we're going to be afraid of losing it. So what we're going to do is, out of fear, we're going to try to do things to protect that power. You can take every one of those things and see everyone presents us with the same problem. We want it, we think it will give us pleasure, but it will not last. And it leaves us with a fear that if we lose it, we won't be happy. So it makes us anxious, we've got to get control of it. Those things start to control our lives. I think I'm only saying, Boethius is only saying what all of us know. Yeah? Comfort, security, God. I mean, those are our gods in our modern world. Power. Okay? So she, so what she does is take on all the false sources of happiness and then turns to what can, the, the source of all true happiness. And she said that um, nothing can answer our longing for happiness that is not self-sufficient and complete in itself. Right? So whatever it is, it has to be inherently self-sufficient, good, complete, lasting. It can't be taken away. And she defines that as God. Okay? Um, he's the only one because he doesn't depend on anything else. He is complete goodness in himself. He's inherently good, self-sufficient. Any questions so far about where we are? Maria, I'm going to you, I may be mistakenly, but um, any questions on the part of anybody to this point? Do you remember where that passage is, where he says that all, God bless, all, is everybody okay on that? I, I, I want to. All what? Tina has a question. Tina, go ahead, Tina. God bless it. Says no, I'm good, thank you. Sorry, you guys, I'm losing it. Um, this that passage where Boethius says that there's no bad fortune. Um, oh, I've got it on page 111. Okay, is everybody okay? I, I want to go over this just for a minute. 
Because you know that, that Boethius's great complaint is this, and he keeps bringing it back to lady philosophy. If God is good and complete in himself, if he's omniscient, if he's all-powerful, if he's omnipotent, or sorry, omnipotent, all-powerful, and if he's omniscient, he's all-seeing, then how can a good God allow evil to exist in the world? How can he allow good people to suffer, and how can he allow bad men to prosper? It's exactly the same question Job asked. So Boethius is taking up an age-old question. It was there in the Bible in Job, in the scriptures. It was also there with the philosophers, all of them. Plato. Most of the work that Boethius is doing here is from Plato and Aristotle. He's just taking the best of Boethius taking the best of Plato and um, Aristotle, who were philosophically the founders of the church in philosophy, and synthesizing it, condensing it. So his great grief, this great question is, how can, how can a good God allow evil? Okay? And then he, Boethius defines God as that which is complete goodness, self-sufficient, inherently good, complete in itself. Okay? Now I want to stop because um, Cece or Maria stopped me here. If I'm last week when we stopped, you had a quizzical look on your face, and I'm not, I, I may have been misreading it, but help me out here. On page 11, after Boethius went through this, um, Lady Philosophy made the point to Boethius that if all this were true, if God was in charge of everything and he was a good God, there was no fortune that could be bad fortune. It's another way of saying to Boethius, stop whining. It's a way of saying to all of us, stop complaining. So on page 11, um, we've got this on page 111. Do you now see what's the consequence that all what we've said? No, it isn't. All fortune is certainly good. How can that be? Listen, all fortune, whether pleasant or adverse, is meant either to reward or discipline the good or to punish, correct the bad. So she's saying all fortune is good. Now before I, because you know that she will conclude from that, that evil is nothing. Evil is nothing. Anybody, if God is all good, evil is bad. It's nothing. It's an emptiness. And I want to be clear before we go on that everybody understands why that's so. So any questions here? Can anybody make, can anybody flesh that out? If God is all goodness, she goes on to say, and she will make her point, She's, she'll say, all good men struggle to be good, to be one with God. It shows that they get better and better, stronger and stronger. An evil man cannot, even, even though he may think he's using power to do evil, is only making himself weaker. Because evil is nothingness. It's a denial. Now, I want, because a lot of people may accept that in their mind, but I'm not sure they can make the argument. And I don't want to go on unless everybody is clear why that's so. So, anybody want to jump in here? If God is all good, evil is nothing. It's bad. There can, she's saying, no fortune is bad. So no matter what happens in the world, violence, all the things that we describe as being bad, she's saying, 
we're not seeing things right because a, a, there's no bad fortune. So I want to make clear, do you have any questions? Can anybody explain that argument? Either refute her or support it. But I want to be clear before we go on because that statement is fundamental to everything we go on to do from here. So yeah, I have I have trouble with that. Good, I good. So what's your trouble? Bless. By the way, before you go on, bless that soul of yours. <laughs> the uh, like I see evil evil does exist. Like for example, hell, like it does exist. So there there is evil, and like we believe in, in the devil and that there are temptations. So I do believe evil exists. What I do believe though is that um, the evil depends on the good to be like it cannot be created on itself because it's destruction of the good. So now, the good has to be there. Now reconcile those two things. Maria. Maria, what am I going to call you? Is it going to be Maria Sassi? Give me a name, please. No, you tell me. What, it's you. Up to you. You can call me Maria. Okay, Maria. I want to get that settled. <laughs> Maria, ex reconcile those two things that you just said. How do you reconcile them? What two things? <sighs> or anybody can, can help. Go yeah. ahead. Melody, go ahead. Okay. So, Maria, what I think is that um, because there is no bad fortune, if evil happens to a good person, a good person can take that opportunity to become even better or to, to remain good. And God works wonders through the evil to change people or to change things. If, if possible. So they're really, um, God allows evil to happen so that good things can come out of that. And if you are somebody who's affected by evil, it's your opportunity to stay focused on God, on the goodness, and not, and not turn away from it. That's why there is no bad fortune, is because it's your opportunity through struggle to side with God. Okay, I'm, I'm agreeing with every, every, absolutely, because that's, you're, you're doing a wonderful paraphrase of what Boethius is saying. Here's where I want to go. I want to go back to a, what is a philosophical problem before you get to that sort of anthropological, you know, site, whatever you want to call it. Is evil, Maria, this is me to you now, is evil a positive thing? Wait, hold on, just let me finish. Boethius says, if God is all good, evil is nothing. And that's where I want to go, because I don't think we can answer your question unless we go there. And I want to be clear if that's, I want to be clear whether that's clear with everybody. Boethius is saying, is, if God is complete goodness, evil's nothing. So I'm asking, is evil a positive thing or nothing? Explain it. Because I don't think we can go on to support what Melody just said, which I, which I think is absolutely consistent with what Boethius is saying. But I want to make sure we're clear in the step before that. 
Is evil a positive thing or not? How do we know? Because Lady Philosophy is saying, um, so, I mean, she said, if you want to confirm a truth, take its opposite and confirm the opposite. If the opposite is true, it confirms the positive. Um, you know, look at opposites. If, if God is good, the opposite of that has to be evil. But that's a, you know, you can make that assertion and understand it. My question to you is, can we, can we see the reason for that? Is evil a positive thing or is it nothing? How do we know? You should define positive thing. Just leave it for a minute, time. Maria, come on, I'm asking you. Oh, okay. So, it would be, I, evil is not a positive thing, but, um, because I think that there is evil, objective evil, and then what happens in our lives, I understand that we can make it and transform it into something good. Um, but for example, if we just decide to sin all the time, like disregard anything, it's not like that's not evil. It is evil. Here's what I'm trying to get clear on is evil. Boethius is saving evil is nothing. So the yeah, argument. I think the, I have trouble with that. I know, I know, I know. I'm, I don't, that's why I want to. That's why I want to. I really. I don't want to go on. I don't want to assume this. I'm sorry. I left it last week, but I, I don't want to go forward with that. Um, if God is complete, here everybody. If God is complete goodness, if He's complete, can there be anything outside Him? If there is, if there is something like evil, where did it come from? What created it? If God is all good and nobody created him, nothing created him, he's complete goodness. Because we said God is being itself, he's uncreated, he's complete goodness. What is evil? Can evil exist outside him as a thing in itself? If God is complete, how can there be anything outside of him? I mean, if it does exist, where did it come from? If it, if it was created by something else, does that mean God is not the creator of all things? The point here is evil can only be a privation. It cannot be a positive thing. You cannot explain it. So the Zoroastrians who believe that good and evil are co-eternal are making an incoherent argument. Evil can't be a positive thing. Where did it come from? If God is complete, how did something exist outside of him? Evil by its nature has to be a privation, a turning away from goodness. So that when an evil, I mean, to go to the point that you, are, you and both Melody are making, when somebody commits an evil act, its very nature is undoing itself. It's moving away from goodness. It's destructive. It will ironically, it will destroy itself. If evil is a positive thing, there's no reason not to choose it with God. But if you choose that, it doesn't make sense because you have to ask, where did evil come from? Who created it? If God created everything, was there something outside of him that he didn't create? It's an incoherent, nonsensical position. That's the point I want to make. Is there, is there a question about that? Evil by its nature is a privation. It's a moving away from being. Because God is complete in himself. 
if evil existed outside of him, how, how did it come into being? What created it? None of that makes sense. The argument that Boethius is making is that God is complete goodness, that every man um, has a will and power, and he uses his will and his power to accomplish some good. All men desire happiness. He already said, happiness and the goodness are one. They're God. Our end is there. When a man starts committing evil, he's showing he doesn't have the will for good. He'll even go on to say he's the most miserable, even if he injures other people, he's the most miserable creature in the world because he's doing evil and can't stop himself. In fact, he'll go on to say that he's even glad for punishments because something in him would like to stop himself and he can't. Think about an alcoholic, think about a drug, somebody on drugs, think about any, think about any of us. Why do we go to confession? We have these sins in us, we struggle to put them away, we're miserable when we don't, when we commit our sins. Boethius' argument, the, all men long for happiness, to be one with goodness. We're most miserable when we don't. Goodness is its own reward. When we perform a good, hap, a good, a good act, we're happy. When we perform a bad act, we're sad, we're miserable. No matter how much we desire it, it could be drinking. Let's say we're an alcoholic. Doesn't matter, drug, whatever it is. But the point here to get clear on is that evil is a privation. It is not a good, it cannot, it makes no sense to say that. Because otherwise it changes our definition of God. If God is uncreated, he is all being, there is nothing outside of him. If evil exists, where did it come from? Who created it? Evil can only be a privation. It takes away. So what's at the basis of Boethius' argument is that when men commit evil, they actually start undoing their own power, their own will, and they make themselves miserable. It goes into this here. Let me, on page 94, he says that um, when we commit a good deed, we, you know, if, if any of us do something expecting rewards, it means we're not even doing things the right way. If we do something good, that goodness in itself is a joy. We're glad in that moment. You know, if I say I love my wife, genuinely meaning it, in that moment there's a joy. And I'm sure that's true for you guys. You know, if we, if we do something good, there's a joy in that. And when we do something wrong... We're upset with ourselves. So he's saying that goodness is its own reward. Punishments are its own fruit. I mean, people become more and more miserable when they get trapped in their wickedness. He says this, page 94. I want to, because this is leading us to Dante. Again, think of the punishment that dogs the wicked from the opposite point of view. A short while ago, you learned that all that exists is in a state of unity and that the goodness itself is unity. Remember, the qualities of goodness is self-sufficiency, it's complete in itself, and it's unified. It's one. It's being. Fracture God? He's not God. Um, do something to divide ourselves against ourselves? We lose our unity, who we are. Every one of us is struggling. Here's the church's word. Every one of us is struggling to become whole. Holiness means whole. Become the image God made us to be. 
whoever that is, whatever that is. So unity, goodness are the qualities of, of what will make people happy. From which it follows that we must see everything that exists as good. God made nothing bad. The Protestant world changed that. It said everything's corrupted. We believe everything's good. There is no, God made nothing evil. This means that anybody who turns away from goodness ceases to exist. Now here's where it goes to Marie, I think, the, the question that we were struggling with last week and tonight. Thus that the wicked cease to be what they once were, that they used to be human is shown by the human appearance of their body, which still remains. So it was by falling into wickedness that they lost, this is on 94, that they lost their human nature. And since only goodness can raise a man above the level of humankind, it follows that it's proper that wickedness threats itself to a level below mankind, those whom it is dethroned from the condition of being human. So, if the ultimate end of us is happiness, and happiness can only rest with something that is completely good in itself, that's God, we only become happy by participating in Him, His goodness. We know, I mean, that's our belief in the sacraments. If we turn away from that, it means we descend to something lower than ourselves. So we either become more godlike or more bestial-like. Um, it follows that it's proper that wickedness thrust down to a level below mankind, those whom it's dethroned from the condition of being human. The result is that you cannot think of anyone as human whom you see transformed by wickedness. You could say that somebody who robs with violence and burns with greed is like a wolf. A wild and restless man who's forever exercising his tongue in lawsuits could be compared to a dog yapping. A man whose habit is to lie hidden in an ambush to steal by trapping people would be likened to a fox. A man of quick temper has only to roar to gain the reputation of what He goes on like that. So what happens is that when a man abandons goodness and ceases to be human, being unable to rise to a divine condition, he sinks to the level of being an animal. Now let me just stop for a second. This is to get ahead of ourselves, but let me try to make this concrete. When we read Dante and we go into hell, what we're going to see is every human being is still going to look like himself. He's a human being. But every single one of those people in hell looks like a human being, but in himself he's become fixed like a machine trapped in an action he's chosen. So the people in hell just repeat again, and it's like an arrest. They chose that. That's what they want. So in some sense, they've ceased to be human like a machine or a human who's caught. So it can be greed, it can be avarice, it can be lust, it can be whatever it is. But the person wants that, and he makes that more important than God. So he, even though he take, holds on to the appearance of a human, he's lost his nature. At the other pole, when we get to Paradiso, you're going to see everybody who's with God is still a human being, but he participates somehow in the divine nature of God and becomes this he participates in something infinitely blessed and more than himself. So those are the two poles of the divine comedy and Boethius has already set them out here. Let me stop for a second. Any, go, you, any questions you guys have? Um, he, wait, I, let's, sorry, sorry, Melanie. So the, the, the more good we do the more we participate in the ultimate end of goodness, which is God, we approach Him. The more we give in to our sins, 
the more we become less than ourselves, move our 12 selves towards a privation, lessen ourselves, make us less than we are or worse than we are. Sorry, go ahead, Melody. Well, so, um, but Boethius doesn't believe that if we become, we act in a wicked way and become more animal-like, that that's fixed, correct? We will, We have the opportunity to change. For sure. For okay, we, so right. it would be only be fixed once we die and we've made our choice to never change. That would be the time when we go to hell and that would be... Yeah. Our animal souls. Yeah, it goes. It goes to one of the. I mean, it goes to the question that I asked earlier. Why the timing? What the question? The book itself is an affirmation of what you're saying. But we. So let me. Let me. I'm going to put this symbolic. Boethius is out of time when he's feeling sorry for himself, grieving, pitying, blaming the world. He's lost. He's going to die unjustly. Lady philosophy comes to him. Let me put it differently. One of the ways in which we can look at what happens in this moment is as if a grace is coming to him to help him out of this thing. So allegorically, one of the ways we can look at this is, here's a man struggling with, let's say, alcoholism. Let's say, worse, it's serial killing or slave trade. I mean, you pick it, I don't know. Uh, Paul, let's, let's get real. Paul was killing Christians. Murder. Um, we're involved in, in a Holocaust. Women are having abortions right and left. If you watch the movie Unplanned, I don't know if you all have seen it, but it's a movie about a woman who, um, who worked for Planned Parenthood who had a moment that knocked her off her feet like Paul and changed. So what the book is principally about is the way in which something can happen to humans to help bring them out of despair or... A, a sin, you know. In the movie Unplanned, it's about a woman who's involved in Planned Parenthood who, had, you know, had a number of abortions. And but here, to go to your point, let me read it on page ninety-six and ninety-seven. Um, Boethius is raising exactly the question you're raising, Melly. What about freedom? You know, if so, if people can choose the good or evil, or you know, what happens? Except here's what he says. Now, Boethius has made this argument, and I think it's crucial to the whole structure of his argument. He maintains that it's, it's more miserable for the person inflicting an injury on another person than the person who's suffering from that injury. Now, I hope that's clear, because he goes on to make the point that in a courtroom, and I'm going to say in our whole culture, the tendency is to pity the person who's been victimize. So we're going to heap pity on that person. If you take Boethius's right, it's, it's a way of sort of showing that we're rescuers. You know, that we're going to rescue these people, even though we leave them as victims. Boethius's argument is that it's worse to be the, the wrongdoer because you're caught in a habit you can't, you don't have the strength to overcome. Let's say you're an alcoholic. One of the women last night we were talking about um, C.S. an article by a book by C.S. Lewis who's going to justice and and we were talking about exactly this thing punishment and mercy and um, and she said when her father was an alcoholic and she said at some point in their life I was so proud of her God I can't 
bless her enough. She said at some point in her life, her brother went to her father and said, Dad, I love you. You can't do this. You know, the abuse, the problems he was creating for the family. We, I think we've all heard of stories. We even know of it when an alcoholic ran over somebody. So even though you're not intending to kill somebody, there can be consequences for something like that. But what he's saying, the person who commits the wrong is more miserable than the person suffering because he's doing something he can't stop. So he's saying punishments are essential. And he, he even goes on to say the person who's wicked is glad for the punishment because it helps him to stop. But then he goes on to Melody's point on page 9697. Um, yes, I agree, but I hope very much that they will soon be released from the misfortune by losing the power to do evil. Boy, you still say it's like he's caught in pity. I hope they'll stop. Now, we, we know that hope that somebody stops is not always enough. That somebody who's in an addiction doesn't have the power to stop himself. That's why all these programs or punishments come into existence. They will release sooner than perhaps you would wish or they themselves expect. For in the very short time of a human life, nothing can be so late in coming as to seem to the mind long to wait for, especially as it's immortal. Their great hope and their ambitious blueprint of crime is often destroyed by a sudden and unexpected end which does at least impose a limit on their misery. For if the wickedness is the cause of their misery, it follows that their wickedness makes them the more wretched the longer it lasts. If you can't stop your misery, if you can't stop the sins you're committing, what are you going to do? Death puts an end to it. But death also brings us to a point of saying, can we stop? Are we sorry? Boethius is saying, um, at least death brings an end. For if wickedness is the cause of their misery, it follows that their wickedness makes them the more wretched, the longer it lasts. So the longer you let somebody live, if he, can t if he can't stop himself, the more miserable he's going to become. So death, in an interesting way, I don't know how to put this, is a reckoning. It's a call to say, we can get all the help we want, but at some point, all of us have to face death. And I want to try to put this as biblically as I can. The effects of our fall were sin and death. All of us are going to die. The question is, will we change before that reckoning? Do we need help? Can we change? Um, can we answer the, you know, the inclination to evil? If death did not at last end their evil, it would count them the unhappiness of men. For obviously, if our conclusions about the misfortune of wickedness are true, any misery which is agreed to be everlasting is infinite. That's hell. So Boethius is showing us the beginning of a problem and its end. That, that our happiness rests in something complete, in goodness in itself. Evil is a privation. By continuing to do evil things, it shows a weakness in ourselves to stop ourselves um, that turns us away from trying to be good. How do we answer that? Cures, punishment, therapy, you, you, you know, you can go, I don't, I don't want to go into that. What he's doing is laying the philosophic ground for understanding our human nature and the role of happiness in our nature and... Um, the struggle we have either to do good or bad. And it leads him to this 
you know, the conclusion that I started with. He says that all good for or all fortune, no fortune is bad fortune. If if God is good, evil can only be a privation. God allows evil to test us, to help us, to strengthen us, to protect our free wills. He does everything to keep us from doing evil. But we know and he knows that because free will is one of the greatest gifts we have, some people will choose it to reject his goodness, his mercy. That condition in our world we call hell. Boethius doesn't call it here, but he's talking about the miserable in the next line. Let me stop here for a second. Is that all clear? This, because it starts, it really begins with this notion that God is complete and self-sufficient goodness. He's complete goodness. Evil is a privation. It cannot be something outside because if it is, we don't know how to explain its source or where it came from or how it stands outside. Evil is a privation. And if it is, it means a constant turning away from God. And any of us who struggle with that know, I mean, why the sacraments... I mean, remember, Boethius' argument, it's only by participating in the goodness that we become that way and that our ultimate end is to share, to participate in divinity and divine goodness. And to become less than that is to become less than ourselves. So it's a philosophic argument. It's going to, you know, it's going to finally lead to Dante. And it's cha- There's not a work of Shakespeare on tragedy, comedy. If we ever get there, I'm, I'm going to start tragedy by going back to Boethius. Um, there's no tragedy that's a bad tragedy. Every tragedy deals with an evil. And we've done, you know, we, I think we did it. Othello, I can't remember, Anthony and Cleopatra. You know that my argument is that every one of them shows some goodness in the world. How could they have recognized the evil and turned away from it? So every one of the great writers we've read assumes that goodness is diffusive. It's everywhere. It's constantly present. It's constantly working to help us even against our own sins. God is trying to do everything he can. The church is trying to do everything he can to get us out of them. But free will is a real thing, and some people refuse it, don't want to, you know, and, and his argument it is what they're doing is just showing their own weakness. That they don't have the strength to do the good that they want and sink into... Let me stop. Any questions? Because um, I wanted to stop early, but I but I wanted to be sure that we gave this time before we go into the fifth chapter because, and this is where I, sorry, I wanted to start. The fifth chapter is going to open this with this question. So let me, I should have introduced it 45 minutes ago. Boethius is going to say, if God's in charge of everything, God's in charge of everything, how do we explain chance? If chance does not exist, I want, this is, this is the, I mean, we, we are getting the heavy stuff right now. Um, if chance exists, it means God's not in control of everything. If God's omniscient, he knows everything that's going to go on. We've already, I mean, Boethe has already made the conclusion, there is no bad fortune. God is involved in everything trying to bring goodness out of evil. Evil's a privation. So Boethius' question is, um, then there's no chance. There's, no, there's really no chance. God's in charge of everything. If he's in charge of everything, then how can have man free will? How can he have it? 
How is not man predestined? That's the Protestant Calvinistic mind. If God sees everything, it's predestined. So the last chapter is going to be de dealing with this question of fate and predestination. If God sees everything, doesn't that mean that everything is predestined and man has no free will? There is no such thing as chance. So that's where we're going. I don't want to, I don't want to go there tonight. I, I, what I've done tonight is I wanted to go back to try to be sure that our ground was firmer before we go on. But, the, but I hope you see the link. Chapter 3, dealing with all, all those things that man pursues, thinking that if he attains them, he'll be happy. So she gets rid of all the false sources of happiness and shows him that true happiness can only, can only rest in something that's self-sufficient, complete, not temporal, not ephemeral, not passing. It's lasting. And it's unified. It's whole. It's complete. There's nothing outside of it. It's self-created. Or it would depend on something else. I hope that's clear. It wouldn't be self-sufficient. It has to be sufficient. No, but nothing created it. Or there's something that it owes itself to. God is being itself. It's self-sufficient. There was nothing before. Evil cannot exist outside of him. Because then you have no way of explaining how, where did it come from. Evil is a privation. It's a working against God. This goodness. If all men were created to be happy... What does he have to do to attain that happiness? That takes us back to the beginning of the story. Boethius is whining, feeling sorry for himself. I've been unjustly treated. And Lady Flossie says to him, stop your whining. It's not the world's fault. <laughs> You've lost your way. Anamnesis. You've forgotten. The whole approach of what she's doing is to recover his memory. To get over his amnesia. Is everybody clear? To recover his memory is to rec remember that he came from God. The center of the Mass for every Catholic is do this in remembrance of me. We're not asked just to commemorate it in our heads, we are asked to participate in to become divine with God. That's at the center of our faith. Every time we take communion, we're asked to go back and recall where we came from, who we are, what our end is, the struggle we have to put away evil in us, to try to get better in being good. So everything that Boethius is doing now is just sort of laying out the philosophic basis of what our mass is, <laughs> you know, every day. Any any questions? Is that all? Is it all clear? Am I making too many big jumps there? Connie, tell me where are you on all this? I'm soaking it in. Is this all clear? Do you have questions? Do you have a question, Connie? No, no. Mm -mm. Mike. Anybody? I like the way you explained it. 
Mike, stop. Can you back up? There's there's an echo in your voice that's scram. Can you step back or then try it again because it's. <coughs> Boy, something wrong. I don't know why it's scrambled. God, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on with the mic. Um, anybody else want to jump in with a question? Lynn, you're new. I, this has got to be. I, I'm assuming a little bit overwhelming, but. Anybody? Tina, you got a question? No. No. No, but thank you. Huh? Maria. Maria, Maria, where are you? I've had you on my mind all week to come back to this question about good and evil because I know it was Okay, so, so to summarize, uh, um, is it like evil does not exist? Boy, here, here's the, well, you are, God bless you. You are, you are trouble. You are real trouble. You are real trouble. I, I knew this. I mean, that's why I came back, because I remember last week looking at you, and your face was, you just were not buying it. Um, here, let me, one of the interesting, you know, it's a hard question to ask, but let me, let, let me answer it this way. God made everything good. If, he, if he's good, I, I'm not Calvinist. Calvinists believe that God created damn souls. I don't, I don't believe that. God created nothing bad. He cre everything, it's the Bible. He created good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, here's one of the interesting things. In Dante's hell, every one of those people is in hell because they've chosen evil. But they couldn't be there if they hadn't been made a human being. So there's a goodness in their being, but they've chosen evil. You know, they've just turned away. So... So, I mean, let, let's just, for the sake of illustrating, I love your questions, you are, I, I wish you would not forget that I'm getting old here and my mind is slipping and have some mercy on my soul. Let's take a guy, let's take a guy, um, if we ever do Lear together, um, there's a, care, a son, Edmund, who's, gonna, who's just a vicious, vicious, mean man. He, really, really evil. At the end of the play, he turns makes this turn, amazing turn. Paul was killing people, okay? Killing people. And everything he went on to do afterwards, after his conversion, he probably laid, I, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating, Paul laid the theological grounds of the church. He explained everything. He said everything out theologically. So his goodness is everywhere underneath the church. If, if you took a guy who was committing evil you'd have to say he's he's not growing into the goodness that God gave him. He couldn't commit evil if he weren't there, if he didn't exist, right? But there's, I think you'd agree that there's a difference between him and, say, Paul, who had been killing people, committing evil, and who... who who didn't do anything except in a spirit of self-sacrifice and everything he did afterwards. He said, I'm a slave, I'm chained, I'm... he was persecuted, he suffered blows, he was in prison. There was not anything he suffered and that he didn't willingly suffer for Christ. And he even, he even said in one of his letters, um, if it were a choice between going to Christ, whom I love, 
and I want to be with and staying here for you, I'd stay here for you. He, he, he did not want to stop, stop helping people. So if you put him next to somebody who's committing evil, you have to say, here's a guy who can't stop himself, you know, doing wickedness. Let's say it's ser serial murderer, what do you, I, what do you name, whatever. And Paul, so you can't commit evil if you don't exist, but the argument that Boethius is making is that when you commit evil, you're actually undoing your own nature so that outwardly you can still take the form of a human being, we all know this, and still become... The, the one thing that's missing in Boethius's argument for me, he makes it clear that we can descend to a beast, we can become bestial, you know, less... What bothers me about his argument is that he doesn't say, and I think wrongfully, he doesn't say we can become demonic, like demons. Because with, we have an intellect, we have appetites. In our intellect, we're like angels. In our body, we're like beasts. To be fully human being means we've got to find our heart and our mind and our, you know, bring them together. But we're capable of, I believe, human beings are capable of being demonic and bestial. We can become like demons. I mean, you may disagree with me, but, but the point I'm making here is that we can't do either of those if we didn't exist as humans. So while we keep our human nature, the goodness that God gave us, we can turn away from him and abs just utterly, grotesquely undo that nature, become something we're not, even if we keep the same appearance as human beings. Okay, hold on. Is that answered or not? Evil. Wait. So, so evil. So, so here. So the point is. So, God made everything good. Evil's a privation. Evil's not a positive thing. Here's a human being who exists, but he's becoming less and less of what he was given by in nature. Imagine, just for a second. Imagine a a, a rose turning into a dragon. We were made human beings. That's our nature. Made in the image of God. We can, we can destroy that nature by giving in to the evil and the sins in us. Yeah. But we can't do that unless there's a human nature with which to do it. So whatever, whatever evil we commit diminishes that goodness. We turn away from God, become less of who we are. We can come like demons, we can become like animals, but we, we're less and less of who God made us to be. The little hand. I'm sorry? Who, somebody said something, I'm sorry. Tina, was that you? I don't, somebody? Maria, does that... Hey, Professor, yeah. can you hear me? Yeah, it says Michelle. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Bill. Bill? Hi, Bill. <clears throat> so I was just thinking wow. on the bigger picture of what you were saying about how great it is that I never thought about how evil detracts. And you take a look on the big picture where you look at like somebody like Hitler who was so... You know, he was an altar boy, and he grew up, and he's he became an this. He's, he thrived on 
evil, and he ultimately collapsed underneath the degradation of evil. Right. But then you look at John Paul, who brought right. down communism. Right. And how great that was. Right. I mean, right. I mean, the power to do good versus the power of evil. And you look at everyone that's done evil ultimately collapses. Yes, absolutely. Good for you. Yeah. It's so so powerful. Yeah. So. Is your name John? Bill. Bill. Oh, Bill. I'm Bill. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, no, Bill. Thank you for that. I'm. I'm. Are you with Michelle? Where is she? She's right here. Hold you on. tell her where. I want to see her. Michelle, there you are. Blessed God. I'm so glad to see you. I'm so. There you are. God. I'm so glad to see you. And I'm honestly glad to meet your husband. Uh, Bill, you need to make. You need to join us more often. You, you and Maria would be a good match for each other. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to go. It's I wanted. I was going to stop this class at 8:15, and I've been way over time. I wanted to cut loose so that we could have time to quiet with the elections. Um, I want to thank you all. Wonderful, wonderful discussion. It's going to the root things. You know, I mean, what Melody said about you know we we want to try to bring good out of evil, but I think it's really important to go back a step to this notion: if God is all good. Um, evil can't exist on its own. We can't explain it. Evil, evil is only a privation, and it's important for us to see that because if we don't see that, I don't think we see the goodness working in the world and what evil is, and I think what Bill just said is so true. But e that means evil, no matter how good it is or how, how powerful it seems to be, it will always destroy itself. If any of you have watched Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, I mean, I, I don't I don't know of another modern work who so fully that fully explores the way evil undoes itself. It overwhelms us. It will kill us. There will be injuries. There will be fatalities. People will die. There will be victims. But there's no way God can be defeated. None, none. Evil is a privation. No matter what happens, we can have a world war. It, Take the catastrophe. Make it as large as you want. God will not be defeated. Evil's a privation. If you look at it as a positive thing, Boethius is making the claim, then you're not seeing things right. Um, anyway, I wanted to get that. I hope this has helped. I really, I did not want to go on to the fifth book because what Boethius is going to ask Lady Philosophy there is, if God's in control of everything, then there can be no chance. And if there's no chance um, and God sees everything, it means everything's um, predestined. So in Book 5, Boethius is going to take on this whole question of predestination and free will. So it's going to go to the center, once again, of everything that we've been talking about. But it was it's just really important to get firm on this whole question of good and evil. You know, if God is complete goodness in himself, he's uncreated. He doesn't owe his existence to anything. Nobody Because if somebody created him, that means he's not self-sufficient. He owes his, he's contingent. He is complete goodness in itself. There was nothing outside of him. Evil has to be a privation. 
That means wherever it is, to go to Maria's point, when we experience it, it feels like a real force. It is a force. If somebody, let's say we've got a son, somebody kills him. There's not a one of us who's not going to feel the effect of that evil. We're going to say that's real. It just took a life. What Boethius is saying is there's a larger perspective. We, we can't forget that something else is going on, no matter what evil is doing on our eyes. So, I'm so, Michelle, I'm grateful for your husband, you know, Bill's point, because it, it just, it's a good example of what we're, you know, it, that evil, even though it seems to be a force in itself, a positive, it's not. It will, no matter what it does, it can take victims, it will hurt, it will lead people astray, but it will ultimately undo itself. That means, I hope everybody follows the conclusion here, that means all of us have a work to do. Every one of us has to resist evil. So. And, and the cost of it, if you're following, the cost of it will be Socrates died. He was in the Psalms very often in the Old Testament readings. You know about the, so this is the Old Testament. All the men who wanted to get together to, um, to do away with a just man. They wanted to get him out of the picture. They wanted to kill him. That's a prelude to Christ. Socrates was killed. Christ was killed. Thomas More was killed. I mean, you can go on and on. Um, to resist evil very often puts us at risk with our own lives because evil's not going to stop. But our trust is, Thomas More's trust was, Christ knew it, Socrates knew it, that there is this greater goodness at work um, that sustains us. So um, let's stop here. Um, I'd like to ask, I'd like to make a special request sometime if in the next few minutes because the evening's ahead of us. Turn off the TV for five minutes. Um, give yourself to prayer and pray for our country. It's a, it's a trial night. It's just a great trial. Our country's so divided. Um, anyway, let me stop there. Okay, um, next week we'll do book five. Michelle, tell Bill I hope he joins us again. And it's okay. And I'm glad to. Well, if God can't be defeated, then then we're all in a good spot. Yes, 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 yes. So I feel some. I feel some relief. Good, good. I'm glad. At the outcome glad. of the election. Yeah, we may wait. We may go into exile. The Jews went into exile. We, you know, I don't. Who knows what's going to happen? But what we should know is, no matter how bad things get, God's not. There's no way He's going to be defeated. The question is where we where are we and you know whatever goes on in this battle. Anyway, um, I so enjoyed this class. It's tough stuff. I'm glad we went over it. Next week, free will and predestination. How's that for an assignment? Okay, um, bless you all, all of you. Would you keep each other, all of us, in your prayers so we're praying together? Okay. Bye, you guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. 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 Thank you.